because so many people come to me and say, I love what you're doing, but I just don't know where to start myself because I haven't figured out what my purpose is. And so I've been thinking about this for 20 years, that purpose doesn't come to people sitting at the starting blocks trying to figure out their purpose. I would say, just start. Start by looking around you. And you don't have to take on the biggest problem of the world. See a problem in your neighborhood and move toward it. Try to understand it. See how you can get involved. Because what happens is you take one step and you let the work teach you where to take the next step and the next step. And before you know it, purpose starts unfolding and you live your way into that purpose. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, the show where we explore the intersection of business leadership, culture, and practical love. Please share this episode with a friend so we can continue to spread the Love in Action message globally. Now, traditionally here on the show, if you've been listening for a while, we cover a lot of topics around things like employee engagement and developing a great company culture and leading through, you know, the servant leadership way and similar topics. Love in action in this sense is demonstrating the practice of leadership care and compassion, typically on three levels, individual or, you know, that the one-on-one level from leader to employee or the group or team level. And last but not least, the demonstrating, you know, what does that look like? practical love and care on a organizational or systemic level. And that could include culture. We're going to branch out today. We're going to talk about love and care and purpose through entrepreneurship and, and creating social change where businesses now address some of the world's toughest problems. I'll have you know that two thirds of the world's population still live in poverty. Yeah. So we need new approaches in order to find new solutions. And to walk us through what those solutions may be is none other than Jacqueline Novogratz, founder of Acumen. Under Jacqueline's leadership, Acumen has invested $135 million to build 136 social enterprises across Africa, Latin America, South Asia, and here in the U.S., And so these companies have leveraged an additional $746 million and brought basic services like affordable education, healthcare, clean water, energy, and sanitation to more than 400 million low-income people around the world. So naturally, Fast Company comes around in 2015 and names Acumen one of the world's top 10 most innovative not for profits. So what about Jacqueline? Well, as head of Acumen, she is she's all over the place. And I'm sure you've probably seen her TED Talk. She's a frequent speaker. And you may remember her best-selling memoir, The Blue Sweater, published in 2009. Go check that out if you can. That book chronicles Jacqueline's quest to kind of really dive in and understand poverty 
And in 2017, Forbes listed Jacqueline as one of the world's 100 greatest living business minds. She has also been named one of the top 100 global thinkers by foreign policy and lots of other accolades that <laughs> the, the list goes on and on. She holds an MBA from Stanford and a BA in economics and international relations from the University of Virginia. Now, Jacqueline's got a new book out. It was actually released last year. I finally got around to gathering her on the show so we can talk about the book, which is called Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Practices to Build a Better World. She now joins us. Jacqueline, it's such an honor. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the show. Goodness, Marcel. And thank you for your generosity and frankly, for the love in your introduction that I love what you are doing and I love that you are unabashedly using the word love in action because I talk all the time about how love is a hard skill. Um, uh, that, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Truly, it's, uh, thank you for what you do. It's, thank you. It's uh, love. Right. It's no longer as soft and fuzzy. It's an essential skills. It's the new hard, right? Soft is a new hard, as Tom Peters would say. Soft is the new heart. Yeah. Okay. So I can't wait to get into your life's work and talk about the book. But first, this question, which I was telling you offline that I think it's just going to be a running theme throughout this conversation. So are you ready for this first question? I'm ready. <laughs> What's your story? <laughs> So, well, my story has a lot of twists and turns in it. And since you promised me, we'll talk about it throughout. Probably one story that encapsulates it is actually the story that becomes the title of that first book, Blue Sweater. When I was about 10 years old, my uncle Ed gave me a blue sweater that had a zebra in the front and mountains across the chest. And it was really important to me because I was the eldest of seven kids in a big military family. So there wasn't a lot of money for new things. I wore this sweater, which I cherished all the time, including into my freshman year in high school when the adolescent curves of my body were changing the contours of this geographic terrain. And, and I believe that there's a singular moment of humiliation in every adolescent young person's life. And mine was when one of the, I guess my high school nemesis just made a very lewd and inappropriate comment about my sweater. And I ran home and yelled at my mom and we ceremoniously dumped it into the Goodwill. So you fast forward 10 years. It's now 1986. I've left a career on Wall Street. I am building the first microfinance bank with a small group of Rwandan women. And I'm jogging through the hills of Kigali when I see this little boy about 10 feet in front of me. And sure enough, he's wearing my sweater. And I think no possible way. I run up to the kid. I turn the collar and on the tag is written my name. And I have held that story as my story of understanding how interconnected our world is and how our action and our inaction can impact people every day all around the world. And it has been its own sort of blue thread, Marcel, through everything I've been, done since. You know, it's funny. This I was thinking about, I think it's important that we get familiar with acumen first and understand the purpose of the company, how that all started. But just like acumen and your book and your story, everything is intertwined. And it's like, we cannot escape the story of Jacqueline because it's all over, all over the company, all over acumen and why, why you started it's all over your, the whole reason for your calling, your your purpose in life. So 
it's funny. I it's all encompassing. So this this conversation is going to be really interesting. I feel like I don't have to jump around and do transitions because it's like just one big topic, and so we can kind of pick and choose where to go. But can we start with acumen first? And if you could just give us an idea, of like for people that have not heard of acumen, how would you describe the business that and the purpose of the company? I mean, in short, what does acumen do? Well, in short. What Acumen does is, is focus on changing the way the world tackles poverty because we've got a broken system when it comes to tackling poverty, which is essentially why, as you said, two-thirds of the people on the planet still live in poverty. And as you also said, Marcel, those twists and turns of my life added up to Acumen. Wall Street, where I started, taught me the power of markets, but also how markets too often overlook, underestimate and sometimes exploit the poor. Rwanda, building a microfinance bank, taught me both, again, I thought if you could give people access to markets, it was enough. But in fact, if people don't have the capability to interact with those markets, it's not enough. Because at the end of the day, and this is where too much government aid and government money or aid from the top down goes wrong, we create dependencies. And so in that middle space, which is what Acumen is based on, is this idea that the opposite of poverty is not income or wealth. The opposite of poverty is dignity. And by that, I mean freedom, choice, opportunity. And so that's the heart of Acumen. We asked ourselves, if we could raise philanthropy as the most risk-oriented capital that we have access to, but use the tools of the market to invest in entrepreneurs, not for a few years like a Silicon Valley VC, but had the patience to stay with that entrepreneur for 10 to 15 years. If we could accompany that entrepreneur to understand the, how poor people make decisions, if we could use our, our social capital to help them build those companies, then maybe just maybe we could solve those problems. And whatever money would come back, we would reinvest. And so now, 20 years later, seeing in some cases entire new markets sectors created so the poor can solve their own problems Mm. has reinforced to me in this moment where we're trying to reimagine capitalism that we have a lot of the models of the new capitalism and we need to build on it. Okay. You mentioned a broken system. So I'm really curious about what right now, what do you see as broken? Talk to us through that. (laughs) Ask a young person today and they will say, what is not broken? Our systems of capitalism, while it has done so much good, So has it created a level of inequality and climate crisis that is has essentially gotten us to a point of what I would call two of the ultimata that the world is facing. This is existential. And I would say when you throw in technology, it's connected to divisiveness as well. And so capitalism itself needs reimagining, needs Mm. new guardrails so that it can come inclusive and just. You extrapolate from that and you look at our health systems, our electricity systems, where we still have 800 million people on the planet with no electricity. Our sanitation systems, one in three people on the planet have no toilet. We have a lot of work to do Hmm. if we are going to create a world that is not only environmentally sustainable, but is indeed just. Because if we don't, it may not be climate crisis alone that takes us down it may be the divisiveness that continues to grow. So sticking to your story, you dropped- I am an optimist, even though I see the peril. Yes. You dropped Rwanda back there. Just for context, 
for people that aren't familiar with your background. Okay, take us back to Rwanda. What did you see enough that made you want to choose Rwanda and, and then start the bank? I mean, what, what was the need that you were trying to fill and why Rwanda? I frankly don't feel that I chose Rwanda. Rwanda sort of chose me. And that's only important in that when I first moved to Africa, I had the conceit that I was going to save the world or at least a little corner of the world. And lo and behold, as this white, young American banker that didn't understand the continent, I was firmly and flatly rejected and got a quick lesson in, in humility that most people do not want saving particularly by people that don't fully understand who they are. And so it was because uh, two women from Rwanda came to me when I was working in Kenya and said that Napoleonic Code had just given women the right for the first time in history to open a bank account without their husband's signature. Would I go and help them do a feasibility study as to whether there might be some financial mechanism that would help women open bank accounts? It was as simple as that. I think, Marcel, because I had already failed a number of times in trying to make change in different countries on the continent, I went to Rwanda determined that I was not only going to help do that feasibility study, but if it made sense, I was going to help build the first financial institution in the country for women. And I learned that a small group of people with that kind of will and clarity of vision really can. Fascinating. So, I'm really curious now. Okay, so then fast forward to around 2001. I want to get the Acumen story. How did you evolve to the point where Acumen happened? What's the story behind that? So, as I had said, having seen that this binary way of looking at the world for profit, nonprofit, capitalism, socialism, good people, bad people itself was broken. And that if we were going to revolutionized philanthropy, which is really where I was starting, we had to be more fluid in our in our way of using markets without being controlled by markets. And so at the same time as that insight was becoming crystal clear to me, so did I see that low-income people wanted to make their own choices. And either because they were fully excluded from functioning markets or because they were just being given whatever charities thought that they needed. They didn't have that choice. They didn't have that freedom. And then third, there was a group of entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs that were starting to rise. It was a small group in 2001 that were trying to use the tools of business to solve social problems rather than simply to make money. And that trifecta led to 2001 starting Acumen. And I didn't know how it would transpire, quite frankly. And some of our first investments, and we decidedly invest equity and debt uh, long-term, as I said, some of them failed. But early on, I saw that with this malaria bed net manufacturer in Tanzania, that we could help build a manufacturing plant for the first time to create long-lasting bed nets, which was a new technology developed by Sumitomo in Japan. We could bring it into Tanzania, take a bet that no other investors would take. Again, accompany the entrepreneur. And a, a year later, I saw that this bed net manufacturer was producing hundreds of thousands of nets. And mm. then, of course, a few, few years later, 
it was a factory of 10,000 people, mostly women, producing 30 million nets a year, 15% of the world's production. And that we could show that could be African solutions to African problems, build new role models, create jobs. But we wouldn't be able to do it if we had that bifurcated view of investment as usual or charity as usual. I love this. So I was, because I was going to ask you for, do you have a good example of what investment are you most proud of? I mean, the bed net technology to me would rise to the top, but do you have any others that you could say, all right, uh, this company has really transformed the lives of poor people on a grand scale? Well, the cool thing now is that we've got, we've got a number, many of them, but the one I would say where we, where I've seen that you can fully disrupt a broken system was in off-grid solar technology. And so layman there is electricity. 2007, 1.5 billion people on the planet had no access to electricity. And that was 140 years after Thomas Edison had invested the light bulb. <laughs> right. Right? How could we have a world where we even think about development where entire countries were having electrification rates of 10 to 20%. And so we invested in these two guys, uh, Sam Goldman and Ned Tozen, who had a solar lamp that they wanted to try to sell to low-income people with this promise that we would eradicate kerosene, which was the energy of choice, dirty, expensive, polluting. They didn't fully know how, nor did we, but we took a bet on them. Long story short, and in and significant investment in them later, that company today has brought affordable light and electricity to over 100 million low-income people. It also helps spawn an off-grid solar energy revolution. And, and we, in accompanying them, we then started to invest in many different kinds of companies in this growing, what I would call an ecosystem. Today, we're the largest off-grid energy investor in the world. And of the 400 million people who have access to uh, light and electricity today, Acumen's companies represent 30% of mm. all people on the planet. That's fascinating. So I want to get into the book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. This is not a political statement, but I just think that we're lacking in morality these days. And here you are, you throw out this book with moral revolution in the title. I mean, why do we need a moral revolution? <laughs> Thank you for that question. First, you know, you said you're not going to get political. Even the word moral for many has political undertones and it should not. And so I decidedly used the word moral not to represent some set of prescribed rules handed down from some higher authority, but a way of seeing the world that is based in our interconnectedness yeah. and this idea that we are part of each other and all living things. And that if you flip to that framework, that moral framework, it would and could change everything. And so if we continue on the path that we have been on, where we have in some ways put that moral framework to the side in pursuit of the trifecta of money, power, and fame, we'll get where we're going. Our opportunity today, and where I feel so hopeful, is that we have to reimagine all of those broken systems in such a way that move to systems that put our shared humanity and the earth at the center. That is the moral imperative. And in that moral imperative is also our long-term possibility for, for prosperity, for peace, 
for our individual dignity and collective dignity. I'm glad you talk about hope. So we got the hope part. I'm, I'm very hopeful and very optimistic with what Ackerman is doing and the, the impact that it's creating around the world. Talk a little bit about the other side. If we stay on this path with this broken system, what's your biggest concern for the future? I truly think there are four ultimata. Climate crisis, the yeah. burn, inequality, the instability that comes with that. And we're already seeing that in many of the nations in which we operate across the world, including in the United States. Third is the growing divisiveness, how easy it is to prey on our insecurity, our instability, our broken parts. And we are seeing a blaming of other that is pulling us away from each other at the moment where we need collective action. And fourth, which is equally as dangerous as, a, as an ultimata, I would say, is what John Haidt, this, the social scientist, calls our lack of convergence around truth. We don't even agree on what truths are out there. And so we have to take those four on or we will get to that more dystopian society. On the other hand, I believe we have a potent, the potential like never before in history. And this is where I stand, not with the cynics, but with the hard-edged, hopeful ones. On the other hand, in taking on these problems in ways that go beyond ideology, that use the right kind of capital, that build the kind of character that is needed to create disruptive systems, I believe that we can both solve those problems and avert long-term climate crisis. And in fact, I believe we can create a future that is so much better than the future, than the present that we have today. Let me go back to the book. So the crux of the book is putting forth these 13 practices, right? And of moral leadership to create change. So I, I want to set up one of those practices here and, and then have you unpack it. You know how sometimes well-intentioned Westerners, let's say, you know, maybe an NGO or a church paraministry will parachute into a third world village somewhere in Central or South America. And they have good intentions, right? To maybe build something or provide some sort of care. You know, I've been there. I've been on those mission trips. But it seems to me like, you know, afterwards, after I come back, it's like, it seems like we were there to kind of experience our own thing and look at their world through our lenses instead of really understanding how they think and really stepping into their shoes so that there's the empathy piece there and learn about their true needs and seeing the world through, basically seeing the world through their lenses and not ours. Okay. So I'm setting the table here for something that is lacking. You call it moral imagination that we need to have imagination that is morally based. It's the first time I've ever heard of such a thing. So I want to ask you to unpack that for us. Well, thank you for that. So too many people use the lens only of their own imagination, even when solving problems for people whose lives are completely different from their own. Moral imagination is the opposite. It starts with empathy, yeah. but it can't stop there because empathy alone simply reinforces the status quo. I feel badly for those people, but I don't do anything to change the system. From there, moral imagination demands what I would call immersion, get close to the problem, understand it, as you said, Marcel, from the perspective of the people that you are, are there to serve, not help, 
serve. And that requires many of the other skills in the book, a deep listening without bias. It also requires that you think about the systems in which those individuals are living and analyze what structures hold them back and be honest about where they might be holding themselves back. And then it's action. And that moral imagination has never been more needed today, whether it is about creating inclusive supply chains, because we have supply chains like chocolate, $100 billion industry that rely on five million smallholder farming families, 90% of whom make under $2 a day. That is not sustainable. And in a world of interdependence, which is our world today, we don't want to be eating chocolate that keeps, by definition, keeps people living in abject poverty. The moral imagination says we don't need to accept this. We have to imagine that we can build a better supply chain, a better industry, but dismantling it and rebuilding it requires that hard-edged hope or love to start from the perspective of those smallholder farmers, understand what it costs them, why that system keeps them making under $2 a day, and then taking on that status quo, whether you're a corporation or a social enterprise or, frankly, a nonprofit. We all have a role to play to create systems that we can all be proud of participating in because now we know it and we should not unsee it. Well, and I'll go one step further. We need to also recreate mindsets because we live in such, and I'm speaking just for here in the U.S., we live in such an individualistic kind of self-centered, self-focused society, really, that we may not even know how to extend that kind of love outwardly to see the world beyond, you know, your own immediate needs, right? Like, oh, I got bills to pay. Well, heck, how do we change mindsets then? So that anybody can say, wow, let me imagine the world through moral lenses differently. Because they may not have the mindset or the capacity to do so right now, to imagine the world that way. I absolutely agree with you that we have to move from the I to the we in everything that we do. I also believe that there's never been an opportunity like there is today because everywhere I go is a yearning for purpose, is a yearning to be more. If this pandemic has taught us anything, it is our dependence on each other and the cost, the toll of isolation, as well as the disproportionate impact this pandemic has taken, as has climate crisis on the poor. Mm. And so this is a moment that is ripe for a change in consciousness. The second piece of good news is that there is a new generation that is already acting on behalf of other people. When you talk to 15-year-olds to probably 23-year-olds, there's such a consciousness about how their actions are impacting the world. I find it quite humbling because mm -hmm. I'll be called out, you know, my eight-year-old niece saying, Aunt Jacqueline, why are you using a, a plastic baggie? And I'm thinking, it's a good point. Well, I'm, I'm traveling. I'm putting my stuff in it. And she's like, well, I hope you reuse it and reuse it. Keep that in mind. So I think that we have to tap into that. But I agree with you, Marcel, that this is a moment for that changing consciousness. And part of the reason we developed Acumen Academy as the world's school to teach the business of change is just that reason that could we not only identify the new business models, whether it is for electrifying the world or healing post-conflict areas or in the United States, 
solving problems of food deserts or getting low-income people access to real credit. But could we also start to celebrate the new role models? Because the heroes that you and I grew up with fit squarely into money, power, and fame as their calling card. The new heroes, if you will, have to be those individuals who are celebrated for the amount of human energy they release in the world, yeah. impact that they are creating. And for that, I'm so grateful for people like you. And we need more people in media with access to minds and hearts to celebrate those role models. Yeah, I've seen more and more. So that brings me to this thought that we are seeing many more businesses and startups, you know, taking the responsibility of being a, a force for good in the world where higher purpose and social change, servant leadership, all those things are on an equal or even higher plane than profits. So it, here's the catch for inputting purpose ahead of profits. These conscious companies I'm finding as I'm reading the literature are actually outperforming the market, but sometimes even tenfold, right? So for the skeptics among us, Jacqueline, how do we reconcile the expectations of, you know, a business has to make profit and please shareholders with creating social change and eliminating poverty? How do you reconcile those two worlds? I would answer this in two ways, Marcel. In the long term, I think there is a growing consensus, including among a group of corporate CEOs that already are understanding that if they do not focus on purpose. They will lose their employees. They will yeah. not be able to hire great partners. They will lose credibility in the community and frankly, customers. And you certainly see that already in some of the industries in which we operate, like coffee, like chocolate. And so for long-term value, that is required. But the second way I also need to be clear for those skeptics is that the business of change that I'm interested in and Acumen focuses on is the business of change in ways that fundamentally change our system to include people who've been overlooked, underestimated, left out, to make them more sustainable. And there are many examples in the United States that give me great hope. Again, not in a hope and a prayer kind of way, yeah. but in a very grounded, long-term, profitable way, in part by understanding how to use the right kind of capital for the right purpose. So we have a company called Every Table in Los Angeles that was built essentially to address the problem of food deserts. In the United States, in urban centers, it's impossible to get affordable, healthy food. Sam Polk, the entrepreneur, actually started by trying to build a nonprofit, which was great to build awareness and knowledge, but people still had no place to buy that food. So he built this fast, affordable, healthy restaurant system. And in the pandemic... Because by then he had built, he had gone from one to eight restaurants. He focused on his purpose when lockdown happened and he was forced to shut his doors. And he sent out a tweet and said, look, if you need food, we'll deliver it. If you can't afford it because this is our mission, we'll deliver it anyway. And if you're willing to pay it forward, here's a link. People started pouring money philanthropically into this for-profit company so they could serve their community. And then they partnered with government. And to date, they've delivered about 8 million meals. Now they are growing to 65 franchises with the recognition that it costs a lot of money to start a franchise, about a million and a half dollars. And so side by side, again, with philanthropy here, they're building Every Table Academy 
So they can train those individuals who come from low-income communities and who show that focus on hard work, that diligence, that aspiration to build their own franchise. They don't have the money mm-hmm. for the $1.5 million, so they're, they're raising a $20 million loan fund, but at very concessional rates of lending so that the people who give money to that aren't going to get big interest over time, but at you know, 5 6 7% interest, that money then gets on lent to people so that they can have a shot. The company will also ensure that they are paid $45,000 a year so that they stay whole. Wow. It's a way of, of using capital and controlling it rather than being controlled by capital. Focusing on purpose and building a viable, profitable company that I believe has the capacity to grow to a billion-dollar company. So mm. just put that down. But it will only work in a way that's inclusive and just and deals with systemic structures that have kept people overlooked, underestimated, and not included by tapping into other sources of capital and partnership. That is what I think is the future. And that is where we have to go. Because the conversation of what will the shareholders say, one is a changing conversation, but it keeps us away from what I think is the more exciting conversation. But this moment in history, how are we going to use our tools, our skills, and our moral imagination to solve the biggest problems of our time? And those problems will not be solved by the nonprofit sector alone, by the corporate sector alone, by government alone. It will take all of us. It'll take all of us. And that's such a great example with every table, how he, they, well, due to the pandemic, they stuck to their purpose, but they pivoted their business model to continue to serve Right. And in, in doing that, they attracted the attention of, like you said, it takes everybody, right? It takes a village and everybody rallied around that. They built community around that, that business where philanthropists are now, we're now interested in that and in making sure that that stayed, that's sustainable. Right. I lived in Los Angeles. It's hard to find when you're in a low income kind of inner city area. I mean, you see McDonald's and Burger Kings on every street corner, but no health food store or, you know, a way to, find a good nutrition for people. So That's right. And it taps into many of the skills of the book. They were able to pivot, as you said, because they really knew how to listen to community. They were able to pivot because they knew how to hold opposing values and tension. It wasn't just purpose or just profit. And it didn't get political either. I actually think that's one of the great hope for the new entrepreneurs in the United States, that these are role models of solving problems in very pragmatic ways that are nonetheless grounded in the moral imagination. And we need more of it because one thing Americans are really great at is entrepreneurship and problem solving. So might I add are people in every nation in which I, in which we operate. And so to see these examples in India, Nigeria, in Kenya, in Colombia that we can bring to the United States and vice versa is also part of the, emerging story of our interdependence as a world that um, needs to be understood more, narrative created around and celebrated. Wow. So as we wind down here, Jacqueline, it's been a such a great conversation. You know, there are so many people that, you know, out there in the world that want to change the world, but they just don't, they don't know how to do it. They, they dream big, but then they lose hope and never really find their purpose. So speak to those people. What would you say to them? It's actually a, a chapter in my book. <laughs> the first chapter is called Just Start. And I started there, Marcel, because so many people come to me and say, I love what you're doing, but I just don't know where to start myself because I haven't figured out what my purpose is. 
And so I've been thinking about this for 20 years, that purpose doesn't come to people sitting at the starting blocks, trying to figure out their purpose. I would say, just start. Start by looking around you. And you don't have to take on the biggest problem of the world. See a problem in your neighborhood and move toward it. Try to understand it. See how you can get involved. Because what happens is you take one step and you let the work teach you where to take the next step and the next step. And before you know it, purpose starts unfolding. Mm. And you live your way into that purpose. And I have seen that time and time again. And so it sounds easy. It sounds trite. Just start. But I frankly don't know of any other way. Well, Jacqueline, we bring it home with two traditional questions on this show. Personally, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like us to know? What tugs at my heart always, Marcella, is complacency and cynicism. I said before that empathy reinforces the status quo, but cynicism is its best friend. And I think in part because the problems of the world right now can feel so overwhelming, this has been a really hard year for people, a hard two years, that people are fatigued and we can't allow ourselves to stay in that place, that this work of change is hard. And yet I wish someone had told me early on that so is it a beautiful struggle and that every step along the way, there is beauty to be found. And I think we've seen that in this pandemic as well. It's in those dark times where you see a flourishing of art and poetry and kindness and love. That's the opportunity that each of us have right now, that if we can dare to look for that beauty and not just focus on how hard everything is, we may find that things feel just a little bit easier because we start to find our better, our better selves. And finally, you get to bring us home your way, maybe uh, with a closing remark or a key takeaway from this conversation that's going to keep us inspired. Well, that's a lot of pressure, Marcel. <laughs> you know, when I started off my journey as a 25-year-old who had no idea what I was doing, I also had no idea if change really was po possible. Remember, I started a financial institution and, and seven years later, though I had started it with with incredible women, and we focused on social justice, those women played out every role of the genocide. And I thought that that institution was destroyed, and so was my life's work at that point. And yet, I go back and I see that that institution remains. Mm. When I look at Acumen, and I think about 2007, when we made one investment in two young guys who had the guts to think that they might be able to do something about the world's lack of electricity, they were crazy and so were we. And yet, by having the persistence and the grit to stick with it through the ups and downs, over 100 million people have access to electricity. And so, you know, I'm into another chapter of my life. I've been doing the work for 35 years and I'm just starting. Mm. And I am just starting in this moment of history that I actually think, despite what we've talked about with the perils, is the most exciting moment in history to be alive. And I now know that change is possible, not just little change, but large scale systemic change, but it doesn't happen if we don't try. So I would end with asking not what is the cost of daring, but what is the cost of not daring? Okay. Now you can drop your mic. <laughs> it's a mic drop moment. <laughs> Goodness. <Jacqueline. laughs> Thank wow. you. 
It's been an amazing conversation. You, I love everything about, I love your heart. I love your authenticity. And I especially love what you're doing in the world. I can't think of a more pure example of love and action on a grand scale. That's why I wanted to bring you on. But uh, if people want to connect with you and learn more about you and Acumen, where can they go? Can you point us to a few, a few places? Sure. You know, the Acumen website, www.acumen.org is the easiest place to go and, mm-hmm. and learn about us. And then, of course, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, my book, is includes many of these skills that are connected to stories of these incredible entrepreneurs from all around the world in whom we've invested. And, um, and they are the individuals that inspire me and give me hope on a daily basis. It's been great. And I've been blessed. I feel like I just went to a church sermon and walked out and I was like, woo, my hands are up. And, uh, you know, it's <laughs> you're awesome because this work is, does not feel like that on a daily basis. Versus, so I adore you for it. And I just love the way you love. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We'll have to do it again, part two someday. But thank you again for joining us. It's been truly an honor. Thank you. The honor is mine, truly, Marcel, and keep doing what you're doing. We need amplifiers that Mm. are values-driven in the way that you are, like never before on this planet. Yeah, thank you so much. The book, again, is called Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. Pick it up wherever books are sold and join the conversation and comment on this episode with hashtag loveinactionpodcast. And look for my show notes on my website, marcelschwantes.com. I'll be sure to include links to Acumen, the book, uh, and I'm also going to include links to every table and, and other resources there for you. And finally, we're always looking for business sponsors to help us grow. If your business would like to sponsor an episode of the Love and Action podcast, hit me up on my website, marcelschwantes.com, or find me on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and watch your business grow.